millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hi everyone and welcome to My Millennium Money Medical and in this episode we have our very first guest on the My Millennium Money Medical series. Essentially I've been doing this podcast now for over I think three years, almost coming up to four years uh, including my time as Debraga Personal Finance and we've never actually had a guest and I think more and more in the future I would like to have expert guests because There's only so much that I can do because I'm not a financial advisor, I'm not an accountant. So I think it's important to get professional people on to get their perspective on some of the nitty gritty topics. And in this particular episode, we're going to focus on taxation. So we have a lot of things to cover, so let's get started. Now, we can't do this podcast without the support of Altus Financial. As a full-service financial advisory business, they can help you in many ways, whether that be your requirements on general business advice, restructuring, and use of multiple entities for tax minimization or asset protection purposes to protect you for the extra risk we take on as medical professionals or a sounding board on ideas you have on your business. Check out altusfinancial.com.au. Now, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our first guest, Andrew from Altus Financial. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks, Dad, for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I've been working at Altus Financial for the past uh, five years. I'm a business services uh, client advisor at Altus Financial, so I primarily help a lot of individuals as well as small to medium-sized businesses along their journey, whether it be doing your annual compliance, tax returns, financial statements, or it might even be, you know, stepping in as an outsourced financial advisor to help businesses along their journey. Well, thanks very much for um, coming on. You are the first guest that we've ever had on the show. So congratulations. And also, I'm a little bit nervous. It's the first time that I've actually interviewed someone on the show. So thank you very much for participating. No, my pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me. So we've got a lot of things to discuss. And basically, Andrew, I'll put up uh, a few posts on various Facebook pages, um, including My Money Money Medical and also my own Facebook page, LinkedIn and Twitter. And we've got a range of topics to discuss, everything from property deductions to debt recycling. And then we'll go into a little bit more complex stuff like company taxes, trust, etc. So let's just get started. The first question is about property. And can you sort of discuss the main differences between a deduction and a depreciation? Because I think a lot of healthcare workers who listen to my channel may get confused between the two. Are they the same thing? If not, what's the difference? Yeah, look, that's a great question. So in relation to property, if, for example, you own an investment property, any income that you receive from that property be accessible within your tax return, what comes with that is any deductions that you pay for in maintaining that property for rental purposes can also be tax deductible. 
Now, to answer your question, the difference between depreciation and deductions is, I think the key difference is with deductions, it's normally something that you would pay to maintain the investment property for your tenants that are living in. So it's a generally a cash transaction, whereas depreciation isn't a cash transaction. It's something that you recognize as the wear and tear for the assets within the property, or it could even be the structural works of the property itself. So it's a non-cash transaction that you can recognize within your tax return to claim a deduction against your assessable income. Yeah, I think the differences has to be highlighted because I think a lot of people get confused. So I guess when you own a property, from my understanding, you've got three main areas where you can actually manage that property. So one is, you know, capital work. So actually doing something to the property, you know, renovating it or building new additions to the property. And this is mainly residential investment properties we're talking about. The second thing is maintenance works and repairs. And the third thing is depreciation claims. I guess, is that the same principles for property in terms of residential investment property and commercial property and industrial property? Or does commercial and industrial property have other things that we need to think about? Yeah, absolutely. So the way I like to to think about it is that it really depends on the type of ownership of the property and the type of investor that you are. So not to make things too complicated, but to simplify things, if you are an individual investor, and I will just focus there, you can go and acquire residential properties or commercial properties as a passive investment. So it's not your day-to-day activities, it's not your day-to-day operations. You acquire it as a passive investment to run in the background and there will be income and expenses that are associated with that. Now, you mentioned before that there are three categories of expenses. One of them was depreciation. One of them is capital improvement. So, you know, things like renovations to improve the asset itself. And the other one was your general day-to-day running expenses. So going back to the example of if you have that asset as a passive investment, the capital improvement costs, the way that I think about it is those are costs that you go and incur to improve the asset value over time. So I'm sure you're probably familiar with the concept of CGT. But when you go and acquire a property, for example, you go and acquire a property for $500,000, for CGT purposes, that is your cost base. Throughout the ownership of that property, any capital improvements that you make can be added to that cost base. So it won't be deducted in the year that you go and make that expense. It will actually be taking off your sale proceeds when you sell that property. So that's capital improvements. The other one was your general keeping the lights on deductions. So it might be rates, it might be electricity, it might be property management fees. Those are the types of expenses that you generally can claim against the rental income that the investment earns throughout the financial year. And The decline in value, the depreciation, is the recognition of the wear and tear of the asset over time. So 
For example, if you go and make renovations to the property in year one, over time, there will be general wear and tear for that particular renovation. So you are recognizing the wear and tear expense within your tax return, which you can claim against your assessable income. Cool. No worries. So to put it simply, if I have an investment property and I put a new family room, you know, before June the 30th this year, in my tax return for 2022, let's say the family room cost, you know, $50,000, I can't say I earned, you know, $100,000, can I please deduct $50,000 because it's a capital expenditure. I can only, you know, add it to my cost base. And then, you know, when I actually sell the house, that's when I may, you know, see the benefit of that. Does that sound reasonable? Spot on. So you're exactly right. And, you know, generally when you go and make these big renovations, it actually does help to go and acquire a depreciation report from a quantity surveyor who then comes out to the property, assesses the assets within that property, including the building and the renovations, and they can give you an indication for what your yearly depreciation deduction is that you can go and claim within your tax return against your assessable income. Cool. And I assume it's kind of the similar principles for commercial and industrial properties, or is there anything else specific? And apart from company tax ownership, yeah, all that sort of stuff. But if I own an industrial property or a commercial property, I assume the same principles apply. Capital works, maintenance works, repairs, depreciation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You as an individual investor, it's, it's, it's the same principle. It's just a different type of, of property, different type of tenant. Cool. Yep. Now, two questions specifically. So, Saab asks, um, uh, he or she bought a new house, okay? And then she made significant renovations to that house prior to moving in. So, she's actually going to move into the house. Um, and then let's say later on down the track, um, they convert it into an investment property. The question is, can they depreciate part of that renovation, the capital works that they've done? Yeah, absolutely. And I assume that's in a pro rata basis, yeah? Spot on. So when they initially purchased that house, it would have been their principal place of residence. So it's completely private. The moment that they go and turn that into an income producing asset, therefore they put it out to the market available to rent, they can go and start claiming deductions in relation to having that property available for rent and producing income. So generally what you, you know, what you would do in that type of situation is when you have an indication of, okay, I am moving out, I'm going to put it available to the market. You might go and do a few things to prepare for that. So it might mean that you go and actually get a quantity surveyor out to go and do an assessment of the building works, the assets that are within it to provide you a depreciation report which will then give you an indication of the type of depreciation that you can claim from day one of having it available to the market and producing income. Right. And there's a part two to this question. Is there anything we should do to prepare for this? And you did mention about getting a surveyor out and someone to actually do the analysis, because I suppose you need to keep receipts and have very detailed records about all this sort of stuff. That's, yep. that's great. Yep. And to add on to that, yeah, getting a quantity surveyor out is one thing. And I think a part of that question they mentioned, you know, getting a new valuation done, that actually would become useful because, you know, let's say for year one to three, they have that property as a principal place of residence. There would have been some value that has, well, you want to hope goes up within that period. 
But the moment that it becomes available for income producing purposes, you'd want to know the value of the asset as of that point in time, because if you ever do go and sell it later on, you want to have a cost base to compare it to. So it doesn't hurt to go and get a revaluation done just to know where you stand. And you also have the documentation and the supporting evidence for your future capital gains tax workings. No worries. Now, the second question about property, and this will be the last question about property, is about Airbnb. Now, supposing I have an Airbnb and I live in a rural area, but my Airbnb is in Melbourne, I assume Airbnb rentals are considered very similar to investment properties, even if they're rented out or not rented out. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So, look, the ATO are recognising that, you know, there's many different ways to essentially make available for rent your investment property. And Airbnb is one of those digital platforms that allows you to do it in the non-traditional manner. So, you know, you don't have to have a property agent. You essentially get the income in via Airbnb. So, that's right. Perfect. Now, can I then rent it out to myself because I live in the country and whenever I go to Melbourne, supposing I stay in that Airbnb and I rent it out myself, is that legit or can I not do that? Yeah. So, that question is an interesting one. It's <laughs> it's actually not something that we, that we hear pretty often. But look, it's basically if you go out there and you rent it to yourself, I'm assuming that you are going to be charging yourself income for which you would pay yourself. So I'm not completely understanding that particular question because essentially you are charging yourself and you are essentially paying yourself. The net effect would be zero. You know, if it was, for example, that you had the Airbnb and you rented it out to an external party that isn't yourself, you'd be charging the tenant rent and you'd be receiving the income to which you'd go and declare within your tax return and any deductions that are associated with that, you'd be able to get a deduction against your assessable income there. Yeah, look, I had that question and I thought there's no advantage because you're going to be spending money out of your own pocket and you're going to get the money in your own pocket. So, the net effect is not much really. I think it's just a classic example of perhaps complicating things too much. And people that know me, I like simplicity. Now, that pretty much completes property. Um, These are very niche questions. So, I want to make sure we get through as much as possible. Second topic is debt recycling. Now, for those of you that are new to this, essentially, you know, what it is, is if you have your own home and you tap into basically your own home in Australia for your overseas listeners, we cannot deduct any costs of the interest of that home or anything like that. We can only deduct for any investment homes. So debt recycling, Andrew, can you just briefly summarize what is it? Yeah, definitely. No. So debt recycling, it's the strategy that aims to turn your current non-deductible debt So, for example, your personal home, you know, you go and make your mortgage repayments, go and, you know, part of that, there's an interest component to that isn't deductible because the asset that you own is private in nature. Now, the concept of debt recycling involves, for example, paying down your mortgage and then reborrowing that money. So, drawing upon that money to go and then invest in income producing assets. So, for example, go and pay down my mortgage and at a later point, I go and draw upon the payments that I have made and I go and invest it into, for example, some shares, which will, I hope, 
will provide me a high return on my investment and the interest component of that drawdown will be tax deductible against the income that particular asset that I've invested in will produce. Cool. Now, supposing you don't have your own home and you have in an investment home, is it still worthwhile doing that? Yes. So if you, so for that particular example, you don't have your own principal place of residence, you have an investment property, right? Go and get a mortgage for that and you go and pay interest for that, for that particular debt. That the interest on that debt is already tax deductible because you've purchased an investment property, which is an income producing asset. You know, you go and receive your rent, you go and pay all your expenses, and you also can claim the interest for that particular loan against your um, investment. So the debt recycling principles and concept doesn't apply for that particular example there. If you are doing it, if you don't have a principal place of residence, you don't have any non-deductible debt, it wouldn't particularly apply for that um, scenario. Right. So the concept is you have to convert non-deductible debt to deductible debt. Otherwise, again, you're just complicating things. So just another Spot example on. of just don't complicate things. Um, yep. that's, that's good. That's a pretty simple question. Third topic is car expenses. Now, yep. I won't bore people in terms of, I mean, there's various ways of claiming car expenses. Can you just briefly summarize the main ways that ATO says that you can claim car expenses? Yeah, definitely. So look, at a high level, there's two different methods of claiming uh, car expenses. One is the cents per kilometer method, uh, which essentially means that you can claim a maximum of 5,000 kilometers uh, using this method here at 72 cents per kilometer. Um, that particular method already takes into consideration the decline in value of the motor vehicle any registration, insurance, and maintenance, fuel costs, repairs of that motor vehicle. So, you know, if you choose to go down that path and using that method, you can't go and claim fuel costs, maintenance, and all of the costs that I listed before on top of the 72 cents per kilometre. The other method is the logbook method. Now, the logbook method means that you can go and claim actual running costs for your motor vehicle. However, it requires that you maintain a logbook for a period of 12 continuous weeks, which then substantiates the proportion of motor vehicle usage that you can claim your deductions for. So, for example, if I go and maintain a logbook in a 12-week period and it represents 80% that I use the motor vehicle for work-related purposes, I can then use that 80% basis to claim my deductions at an apportioned basis. Cool. No worries. And what about the instant asset write-off um, for cars and small businesses? Like, you know, uh, if I'm a small business owner, you know, I'm a GP, I own a practice and I need a car for work purposes, quote unquote, can I go and buy you know, an expensive car and sort of instantly claim that as an asset write-off? Yep. So, look, the ATO and the government, they're always releasing updated concessions for accelerated depreciation or write-offs on assets. So, 
for example, right now there's a bunch of different concessions that you can go and claim and you have to follow the order. But essentially, yes, that there is a concession available for business owners who purchase a motor vehicle. And let's just say for this particular example, you use it 100% for work purposes, you may be eligible for a full write-off on that motor vehicle. Now, in saying that, for motor vehicles specifically, motor vehicles are capped at a car limit and it's around $57,000. So um, you can only get a deduction up to that cap. If it was for other business-related assets, there is a cap for the instant asset write-off. It just depends on which method that you go down. But the motor vehicle one specifically, they say it's $57,000 around that amount. Right. So I can still buy an expensive car, but I can only instantly deduct $57,000. Yeah, that's right. Because if you think about it, you know, there's nothing stopping people from buying flashy cars when really, you know, it's not really required for their work purposes. So, you know, that's that's why they have that car limit in place is to, you know, say, yep, you can buy a flashy car, but we're only going to give you a certain amount of a deduction. Sure. No worries. Now, with this car expenses question, I got uh, one, two, three specific ones. The first one is from Doc, who's an electrician subcontractor. So, I assume they work for themselves. And they ask, I'm a tradie and I buy a new work ute, I do the instant write-off 100% in the first year. If I sell that car in three years' time and buy a new ute, can I do another instant write-off again? And if so, how many times can I do, do this during a lifetime? Can I do it every three years? Yep, so that that's a good question. Now, that really just depends on the tax depreciation concessions that are available at the time. So right now, we we are able to um, get an instant tax write-off on certain assets, but that may not be the case three years down the track. It just depends on what legislation is out and what we're allowed to go and claim. So, you know, if you decide, you know, you may have gotten the uh, tax write-off when you initially purchase that first vehicle, but three years down the track, it just might be a different scenario. Um, so it really just depends on what's available at that point in time. Sure. And if it was available, then nothing's stopping Doc from doing that, I would have thought. No, 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 no. there isn't. No. So um, as long as it's used for for work purposes, you'd go and claim the, the work proportion of that up to the car limit um, cap. And then when they sell the old ute, do they have to sort of take that into consideration? Can they only claim the difference? Let's say if they sell the old ute for like 20 grand, so then the new ute, they can only claim 37,000 or how does that work? Yeah, so that's a really good one and that's where a lot of people can get caught up because essentially if you've gone and purchased a motor vehicle and you've gone and instantly written that off on the purchase, you've essentially said to the ATO, you know, for tax purposes, my car value is worth zero because of the concessions that have made available. Now, let's say two years down the track, you go and sell that motor vehicle for, let's just say $20,000. Okay. So you've sold it for $20,000 to which you're going to tell the ATO, I've sold my asset for $20,000. However, the value of the car for tax purposes is zero. So in this particular 
instance, if the asset's value is more than the adjustable value, which is that zero amount, you'd actually have to go and include that difference as assessable income. So that's what they call a balancing adjustment, which a lot of people can get caught on. Now, how you can, you know, essentially offset that assessable income from the money that you made on disposing that asset is you may purchase another motor vehicle to which then if there's a tax concession available for you to accelerate the depreciation or instantly write it off, that would offset the assessable income on the sale of the first vehicle. Yeah, cool. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Hopefully that answers Doc's question. I've got another one regarding car expenses from Jane, who says, I'm a healthcare worker and I think Jane is a doctor. If I keep a bag valve mask, which is like a resuscitation, you know, mask, some intravenous cannulation equipment when to give fluids in an emergency and other life-saving emergency medication in the car at all times, hopefully locked, yep. can I claim the entire cost of the car and associated maintenance costs? Now, this is slightly different to Doc's question because Doc, Doc is an electrical subcontractor yep. who carries tools, ladders, jobs, for et cetera, right? Yep. Um, for a doctor, um, the only real bulky equipment you may want to carry is an AED uh, defibrillator or something like that, or, or even like what's called a doctor's bag where they have emergency medications. Is that really considered bulky items? Yeah. So generally what's considered as bulky tools and equipment is anything that weighs in excess of 15 to 20 kilos. That's what's considered as bulky. Now, you know, traveling from home to your workplace, generally you can't claim the cost or a deduction for that particular trip from your private residence to your work in limited circumstances where you do pass this bulky test. So, you know, if you do carry bulky tools and equipment for work, there's, you know, certain criteria that you have to, you know, pass. For example, the tools and equipment are essential to perform your employment duties and you're not carrying them as a matter of choice. So if your workplace actually has a place for you to store that equipment, but you just choose to store it in your car by choice, then you wouldn't be eligible for a deduction there. So what the ATO is looking for is basically what is expected from your employer. If your employer expects you to carry all this bulky equipment, there's no place to store it at the work site. Things even in your employment contract, it specifically says that we we do expect you from time to time or all the time to, you know, carry equipment outside of working hours, then you actually may be eligible for the deduction, even if you are traveling from your private residence to your workplace. So one of the things where people can get caught out where they think it's fine is, the ATO can actually contact your employer to verify the claims that you make. So if, for example, you go and say, yep, I've got a bulky vehicle and I carry the tools, here's my deduction, they can contact your employer, ask them, and, you know, this is where people can get caught out. So you need to be very careful in, you know, the type of claims that you put within your tax return and just make sure that it's substantiated pretty well. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and I suppose a lot of the doctors that 
may want to do this or not do this. Uh, no, no professional advice here is uh, they're all private practitioners. So if you're a dermatologist, don't be in a rush to buy an AED or buy a very heavy one because AEDs are much less than 15 kilos. So uh, that's interesting. I didn't know about the 15 kilo rule. Now, one more question about cars and we move on. So Divya asks, you know, she has two jobs. One is 12 kilometers from home. The other one is 50 kilometers from home. And she's written specifically, I understand the second job kilometers are deductible. Now, I didn't think so. If you travel from home to the second job, it's still not deductible, yeah? Yeah, so y- y- you're right. You-, you generally can't claim the cost of trips between home and work. So it doesn't matter, you know, if you've got two different jobs or two different employments, you generally can't claim it from home to work. There's limited circumstances to where you can. For example, the bulky tools um circumstance, that's one where you possibly can get a deduction. So where you can get a deduction is where you travel directly between two separate places of employment and neither of those places are your home. So for me, for example, you know, I live at home and I travel to the city to to go to work. I can't get a deduction there. That's private in nature. If, for example, I had to travel from my office to a client's office, I can get a deduction for that travel if my work doesn't reimburse me for that particular travel and it comes out of my own pocket because it's 100% related to work purposes. Mm -hmm. Yep, cool. And last question from a guy called Dev Raga, uh, who drives an EV. And if you haven't listened to an EV episode, I, I did release one recently about my Model 3. Now, unfortunately, in Victoria, we have to pay a 2.5 cents per kilometre EV road tax, um, which they're calling it a road charge, but I think it's a tax. Yep. Uh, if I use my car for work purposes, I assume that'll be counted as, you know, one of the ways that I could potentially deduct that expense. Uh, obviously, there's various ways of doing it, like you said, 72 cents per kilometre or, yep. you know, logbook method, all that sort of stuff. But I assume that's that'll just be added on depending on the type of uh, claim that I do. Yeah, so, so look, you know, generally bridge tolls, road tolls, car parking expenses, you can go and claim that as a work-related transport expense. Now, for this particular example here, I don't believe they have this in New South Wales. Don't quote me on no. that. No, just Victoria. The great state of Victoria, uh, Andrew, has an EV road tax, but I think other states will have it soon. Yeah. There you go. There you go. So, so look, there, you know, there are circumstances where you can claim state taxes as a deduction. Look, for this particular tax here, it's, in all honesty, it's actually something that I haven't seen before. So I'm not particularly too sure whether there would be a deduction there, but, you know, for things like bridge tolls, road tolls and car parking expenses, yep, you can get a a deduction for it as long as it's work related you know for the road taxes in particular what I'd be looking at to, to determine whether there's a deduction there is how related is it to work purposes so for example if it's traveling from office to office to visit a client in my electric motor vehicle and you know I've got to pay petrol so you know I can potentially get a claim there, the road tax would be one that I would think maybe you could get a deduction for, but it just depends because some of these state taxes, there's a lot of them that you can get deductions for. There's a lot of them that you can't get deductions for. So it might be a little bit of homework for me, but I'd be very interested to actually see when that particular tax was actually introduced and what are the requirements behind that. That's interesting. Yeah. So if Dan Andrews is listening, I'll be sending a bill to him then. (laughs) 
because uh, yeah, obviously slightly bitter about it, but uh, I think it's the future. I think I think that's what's going to happen across Australian states uh, and territories. I think EV road tax will come. Moving on, the next topic is laundry expenses. Can all work clothes be claimable? Now I wear scrubs to work, so uh, I don't wear any formal clothes or anything like that. So if I wear something to work. Can I claim the expenses to dry clean it and wash it? Absolutely. And it really just depends on the type of clothing that you wear. So the example that you used was scrubs. So scrubs is seen as one of the categories of clothing expenses under the clothing deduction rules that would fall under protective clothing. You have to, you know, wear the scrubs to protect yourself. Essentially, you know, if you go and buy those scrubs from your own back pocket, then you can get a deduction for that. If you have to go and rewash the scrubs, your work doesn't do it, you take it home and you go and wash it, then you can get a deduction for the laundry expense. Now, there are, you know, ways in terms of what does that look like in terms of dollar amounts? You know, I'm just putting it through the wash. How can I really determine how much does that cost in terms of a deduction? The general rule is it's $1 per load. If you wash the scrubs with, you know, other on its own. So you're essentially, you know, washing it on its own. It's $1 per every wash that you do. If you go and wash the scrubs with other clothing, might be your personal clothes, might be other clothes, then it would be 50 cents per load for that particular wash. So you go and add that up throughout the year. So, you know, you can use that as a basis over 48 weeks, assuming that you take four weeks of annual leave and you'd be eligible for a deduction there. Cool. Yeah. Look, a lot of people listening to this episode, you know, nurses, doctors, allied health professionals that work in hospital systems or even private clinics uh, wear scrubs. So it's one of those little known deductions that people don't really do, despite, you know, a significant proportion of healthcare workers yep. do wear scrubs or anything identifiable. I think ATO says it has to be identifiable to your profession. So if you wear a suit and you're a surgeon, well, you know, people wear suits, not just surgeons. So therefore, that's not really claimable is my understanding. Yeah. And look, one of the other misconceptions is, um, you know, your uniform has to have a work logo on it to be, you know, completely separated from anyone that could wear it within the public. And that's true. That's one of the ways, but it's not just that. You can also, you know, if it's occupation specific or protective, you know, you generally can get a deduction if it's fits within one of those categories. You mentioned before suits, for example. Well, you know, the clothes that I'm wearing now, I would love to get a deduction for it. Unfortunately, I can't because it's what they actually call conventional clothing, which means that, you know, it's not very specific to my occupation. You know, a like what you said, a doctor could wear the clothes that I'm wearing now. It's not occupation specific. It can be worn by several different professions. So it's looking at those four different categories and seeing where you fit within that. And if you do, then you may be able to get a deduction there. Perfect. I mean, and I guess it's probably worthwhile to consider when I say healthcare workers, I'm also including administrative staff. So for example, if you're a receptionist working in a private specialist clinic or a GP clinic and you have a uniform that you wear or you wear scrubs, I suspect you need to think about, is that counted? You know, if you wear a uniform with a logo on it, then there's no reason why, uh, you know, that can't be counted as my understanding. So don't forget that healthcare workers is a, we're a, we're a very broad uh, spectrum for those listening. So if you do know 
of a reception staff or administrative staff or back office staff that are wearing uniforms, please do tell them that this is something, it's completely legit. Yep. No, exactly right. Spot on. Now, one more question before we go to break. Accounting book and bookkeeping software for doctors that work in private and public sectors, you know, they need to have some software for bookkeeping sometimes. Yep. Now, they can outsource it or they can do it themselves. What's your opinion, professional opinion, of the software called Zero? Yep. It's an easy one. We love it. It's, it's a great software for small to medium-sized businesses. And as you know, small to medium-sized businesses, they are, you know, the lot, one of the largest contributors to the, to the economy. There, there's so many of them out there. And Xero has actually, you know, taken off over, you know, I'd probably say the last eight or so years. I think Myob was, you know, the predominant leader within uh, the space, MYOB. And Xero uh, introduced their product, which was, you know, cloud-based. Myob at the time had, it was predominantly desktop-based, which meant you work on one computer and that was it. Any files, you had to transfer it over. Xero came in, cloud-based, very easy to use, not just for accountants, but also just for, you know, small business owners. It's very easy to use. There's a lot of training out there and that's available for free for users of Xero. So for any doctor or practitioner that, you know, has started a business and is looking for a software, I'm not sponsoring them is looking for a software to essentially manage their day-to-day bookkeeping. Xero is a great product. We use it within our business. A lot of our clients use it. That's essentially my opinion on it. I couldn't speak more highly of it. And for those of you interested, it's actually a New Zealand company, but it's listed in the ASX and it's done really well. I think it peaked at $151 a share back in September 2021. Now it's at almost half half of that. It's about $86 last time I checked. So it's done really, really well. So, uh, yeah, look, generally the feedback that I've received is it's a great software. And I think cloud computing and cloud everything is, uh, it's definitely the future. So it's interesting that a professional accountant and financial advisory service uses it. So that tells you a lot about how good that particular software is. So, uh, if you're that particular doctor who asked that question, it sounds like it's, uh, it's a good pick. Now, we'll just take a quick break. And when we come back, we've just got a few more topics. Trust, I want to focus a little bit on that. Uh, CME entitlements, ATO data matching if possible, and a couple of other topics as well. So uh, we'll be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, welcome back. We're just having an episode about tax with Andrew from Altus Financial. And just another thanks to Altus Financial for getting behind My Millennium Money Medical. We can't do this without them. Uh, if you're established in your career, you've got a solid income or looking for the next steps, or you're just after some advice about buying into or selling or opening your first practice, Altus Financial can help. Altus is offering a complimentary 15-minute chat for anyone who wants to discuss their scenario with their professional team. Just click the link in the show notes for more information. Now, some more questions for you, Andrew. Trusts. Now, this is something that gets thrown around quite a lot. Doctors love trusts because um, they see this as a way of, you know, tax efficiency. Yeah. It's often perceived as tax efficiency. And how much does it actually cost? Let's say if you have a family trust, a discretionary trust or something like that. How much does it cost to maintain a trust on a yearly basis? You know, ballpark figures here. Yeah, definitely. So, look, Cost of establishing it and maintaining it can be very high. Sometimes it can actually outweigh the benefits of having a trust structure, especially when, you know, the assets that the trust holds aren't worth that much. So look to, you know, a trust with basic investments such as shares, managed funds, or investment properties, it might cost between 1.5 to 2K per year. Um, to that's just the ongoing management of that trust. Whereas, you know, larger and more complex trusts with a lot of assets, a lot of income might cost between, you know, three to 5K per year. So it really just depends on the volume of transactions that occur within the trust and the type of assets that you do have within that trust. Cool. Now, what about people that are employed? So, if you're a nurse, if you're a doctor that works in the public system or allied health professional or even reception staff, um, can we can we set up trusts um, and can we route our income via this trust? Is that even possible? Yeah. So, look, I think it's probably important to note. Um, I, I guess I guess the reason why you might want to establish a trust that the purpose of you know, establishing a trust would be to manage, protect, and to to essentially pass on um, income that the trust would gain um, from that particular asset. So, you know, trusts are used a lot, f- a lot for asset protection and also for the distribution of income to whether it be the beneficiaries or the unit holders of a trust, just depends on the type of vehicle. Now, based on that example here, for a generally under an ordinary employment arrangement, so someone who works at an everyday job, you can't reroute your employment income to the trust because it's not an asset that the trust can Hold. It's just your employment income. It's it's purely your personal exertion for that income. So there's no real point in doing that, I suppose. Or you probably can't even do it. But I suppose if I have an income through a hospital and I use that income to invest, then I can do those investments under a trust. That doesn't stop me from doing that. But the original income has to be routed by PAYG. Yeah, absolutely. And look, that's purely what I'm speaking to is, you know, one individual who has employment income, just employment income, you wouldn't be able to reroute that income. 
but there are circumstances where you can essentially use a trust to run your business structure. So to earn business income, to pay your business expenses, and to then um, pass on the net income to the beneficiaries or to the unit holders of that particular trust. Now, there was recently, I think probably Feb, March, there was a sort of ATO ruling about the Section 100A, which got a lot of attention, certainly in the medical forums uh, when it comes to finances. And can you sort of just briefly discuss what the issue was? Yeah, absolutely. So, look, I'll try not to to bore everyone here, but I'm sure your audience will be familiar with this because whether it be that you have your own family trusts or whether you are a beneficiary of your parents' trust, for example, or another trust in general, this is um, something that, you know, you might have seen that might have raised a little bit of concern. So, look, basically, there's been a lot of media uproar on this topic lately, which is section 100A. So what had actually happened was the ACO released draft guidance, um, which sets out the ATO's new compliance approach in relation to trust distributions. So what the ATO are focusing on is trust distributions that are made out to beneficiaries to achieve a tax advantage where the funds related to the distributions are not paid out to the entitled beneficiary, right? So that's probably a concept that a lot of your listeners might be familiar with is, you know, if you are a beneficiary of the trust and you are made entitled to income for a particular financial year, you may have received a distribution tax statement that shows your distribution and you may have received cash for that particular distribution. Now, the reason why there's an uproar is because this legislation has been around for over 40 years. However, the legislation specifically for ordinary family and commercial dealings wasn't clearly defined to taxpayers and advisors. So the distribution of trust income to adult family members was considered to be an ordinary family arrangement by taxpayers and advisors, which is actually common practice amongst the community and is widely used across Australia. So we can understand why there's an uproar out there because basically what was considered as common practice over so many years and the ATO knew it was common practice is now coming under question by the ATO specifically. Yeah, so a bit of a change in goalpost there from the ATO, uh, surprise, surprise. But let me just provide an example so that let's simplify things a little bit, right? Supposing I have a trust and I have investments, uh, you know, that are owned by the trust and let's say the income through that investment is $100,000 and I have five beneficiaries and they're all basically part of my family. Essentially, what that means is I can distribute the 100 k to those five beneficiaries, but do I need to equally split them? Does it have to be 20K per person or can it be whatever I want for whatever person? Yeah. So if we're talking about a discretionary family trust, which is actually probably one of the most used vehicles for a trust, it doesn't have to be 20,000 per beneficiary. You can actually, the, the trustee 
you know, let's just use you as the example, you being a trustee of your family trust can make the determination at the end of the financial year to go and allocate um, a certain proportion of the income to the whoever beneficiary that's listed on the trust deed that you wish. So you might wish to allocate, you know, you've got five beneficiaries. You might choose to only allocate 50% to one of them and 50% to the other one. It just depends on who is listed on that trust deed and what are the powers associated to the trustee that's listed within that trust deed. Sure. And it also depends on the individual tax rates of those beneficiaries. So it'd be in my best interest to distribute the highest amount to the lowest tax bracket person rather than distribute it to the highest amount to the highest tax bracket person. That would be silly to do. Yeah. So that's that's a that's a tax planning exercise, which has been common practice for so many years. It's it's choosing where to where to allocate that and the funds that flow from that. Now, second question is I've got kids under 18. Let's say I've got five beneficiaries, three are adults, and two are kids under 18. Can I just distribute funds to those kids um, or is there like that limit where it's 400 and something dollars and that's it? Yeah, that's right. So for minor beneficiaries, um, they, you know, you can go and allocate a distribution for tax purposes of $416. I think that's the amount. But anything above that, that minor beneficiary will get taxed at a higher tax rate, which is substantially higher than what the adult rates are. So, you know, care needs to be taken in distributing to minor beneficiaries. Yeah, so your 18-month-old toddler can't have an income of a uh, million dollars because I think after that, after $416, I think it's like 50 to 60% tax rate or something ridiculous. Yeah, spot on, yep. Now, does that mean... Let's say, okay, coming back to the scenario, five beneficiaries all all over the age of 18, does the money, let's say I'll distribute $20,000 to each, each person who's a beneficiary and they're all adults, does the money physically have to reach them in terms of electronic transactions or can it just be on paper? Yeah, so this is what Section 100A is all about. So- what it's about is if you go and make a distribution to the beneficiary, you, you go and make that determination at the end of the financial year, there is an expected outcome that that beneficiary will have the funds flow to them in some sort of manner. Now, the interpretation of the legislation has always been for so many years um, that the family and commercial dealings aspect of that legislation allowed you to go and make distributions um, under a family arrangement. So, um, you know, it, it, it can be on paper. For example, for your kids, um, it can be on paper, except that's also, you know, for them to reimburse you, it could be they're living at home, you know, rent-free if, if they're over the age of 18 years old. You know, that that could have been a family arrangement. Now practices like that are coming into question, which is what's creating such an uproar because the community um, is not happy about it and carefully concerned about their clients and also their own tax affairs. So really that ruling that just came out recently, it's just the draft ruling. There are challenges that are going against that. So at the moment, it is a wait and see game 
to really see what the final outcome of the assessment is once all the challenges go through it's a wait and see and to be to be aware of it we need to be you know very aware of it moving forward but you know if for example you have listeners out there who are generally concerned about it recommendation would be to speak to your accountant about it you know if your accountant hasn't reached out to you you could reach out to us and we can go through your circumstances in your scenarios and try and provide you a little bit of guidance there. Sure, no worries. And I think this episode will probably air just before the financial year 2022 finishes. So uh, what you're saying, Andrew, is things are not going to change that rapidly. This is all just draft and we've got a fair way to go in terms of making this legislation. Yeah, that's right. So it's a watch this space game and to be very aware of it moving forward in making your determinations before that 30 June period. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure if you've got a family trust, you've got to go and do up a set of trust minutes that determines how your income is going to get allocated. You know, it's bearing in mind that, you know, this legislation, you know, this ruling could actually come into play. So it's to keep in the back of your minds, but also speak to your accountants about it on how to proceed about that moving forward. Sure. And I guess the other thing is the beneficiaries can then basically give the money back. You know, if if I'm a 19-year-old son and, you know, my parents have a trust account and they have $100,000 income and they give me the $100,000, I could just give the money back to them. And that, that's called this sort of reimbursement agreement. I suspect that's kind of how we were winging it all these years. That's right. But that may come under threat moving forward. That's right. And that's what is the focus and the uproar. That's that's what's being paid close attention to right now. So we can understand why there is an uproar because it's now not coming under questioning. Yeah. Imagine that. Parents paying their kids on paper and not actually giving them the money. So if you're an 18, 19 year old listening to this, you should go and ask more money from your parents <laughs> if you have a family trust. Now, Sort of moving on a little bit, probably got another, oh, I reckon probably another 10 or 15. Is that okay with you, um, Andrew? Yeah, absolutely fine. CME entitlements. So CME stands for Continuing Medical Education Entitlements. Now for public health employees around Australia, uh, particularly doctors, uh, I'm not sure about um, nurses and allied health professionals. I think there is some CME allowance, uh, allowance built into their pay. You get CME allowance and if you use that money basically for your professional development. So I'm in Victoria and we get um, CME allowance and I can use it for conferences, tech aids, workshops, uh, advanced life support training, whatever that's related to your subspecialty. Now, if I spend $1,000 for that and I put a CME claim to my hospital and they reimburse the $1,000 back into my account, the net effect is zero. Yeah. Do I still need to disclose that to the ATO? Yeah. So, short answer, yeah, you do. Because essentially what's happening is your employer would, if they are providing you an allowance, they would report that through your your payslip or your remittance advice and they're likely to actually go and withhold taxes from that income because that the allowance becomes accessible income. Now, they've provided you an allowance. It doesn't mean that you've spent it. You know, the intention is that you do spend it for what the allowance provides and you may be able to, you know, if you do go and spend it, you may be able to get a deduction for um, that particular spend. So even if you spend 100% of that allowance and you do get to a net zero position, you know, you don't really, sometimes you may not even have the choice to, you know, 
disregard that as assessable income because, you know, your employer is already reporting that through their single touch payroll software. So it would be in your interest to actually go and put that deduction in, even if it results in a net zero amount. Hmm, how interesting. I think a lot of people may be caught out by that, actually. That's an interesting thing. That's a pretty, pretty sort of simple topic. The next topic is ATO data matching. Yep. Nowadays, when I go and sit down with my accountant to do my yearly taxes, my accountant has all the figures uh, ahead of me because I'm a uh, pay-as-you-go uh, employee. So, I know ATO have a very sophisticated data matching. Can you talk a little bit about how sophisticated it is? Yeah, so look, the ATO receives data from a range of different sources. It can be banks, financial institutions, government agencies. It can even be from your insurance provider. You know, they're constantly building their technology every single year and their technology is getting better and better to be able to get data for individuals on a more live basis. So, you know, one example that I can list is single touch payroll, as I mentioned before. In the past, employers would report wages for employees. It might be through their quarterly BAS or through their monthly um, business activity statement. You know, right now with the introduction of single touch payroll, which came out about two to three years ago, the ATO is now receiving live payroll information on the day that the payment is being made. So, you know, for my particular clients, I can actually go and see what their year-to-date earnings are because the data is being reported live, whereas years and years ago, I couldn't do that. (laughs) You know, I'd have to actually, you know, ask a lot more questions. So the ATO has that data right there, and that's just a result of the introduction of new technology, which has allowed them to collect that information. So look, the overall message behind, you know, ATO data matching, it's only going to get better. You know, you can't be as sneaky as what you might have been years and years ago. The ATO will, if they really want to, they will find find out whether, you know, you're cheating the system. You know, they got better methods of, of catching people out these days. And do you know if other countries have such sophistication, like the United States, Canada, and other sort of developed nations? Do they have a very sort of similar system? Is it all live or? Uh, look, I wouldn't know specifically for those countries, but I'd imagine with, you know, technology continuously improving that they would have, you know, th- it would be in their interest to have this technology available to get that real-time data so that, you know, the, the better that their data gets and the better that they're able to catch people on, you know, false claims, it means more tax, you know, revenue that they can essentially collect for their country. And lastly about this sort of ATO business, I know some businesses, particularly, you know, people that own practices, often they get an ATO debt. Like basically they have to pay taxes at the end of the financial year because, you know, they, they hoard all their money, all that sort of stuff. So I've heard this strategy where they can actually go borrow money and use the borrowed money to pay off the ATO debt or ATO tax and then claim interest on the borrowed money and deduct that. Uh, is that possible? And is that a really, really smart way of using someone else's money to pay off debt? Yeah. So it might not be an answer that you're going to like, but no, look, generally you, you know, you can claim a 
deduction for interest expenses for if the ATO imposes an interest expense on you for, for example, you know, late payment of your your tax debt, you can you can claim a deduction there. But if you were to borrow money to pay your outstanding tax liabilities, unfortunately, you can't claim interest. You incur the personal tax debt. So what about business tax debt? Essentially, the same would, would apply there. For the personal tax debt, it wouldn't be because it would be private in nature. For business tax debt, you, you may be able to get a deduction there for you know funds that you re- you've essentially received for working capital requirements to to run your business you know if you use the funds to go and pay ato debts you may be able to get a deduction there right right and look for all listeners just try not to have ato debt the last thing you want is um the ato on your back would you agree andrew a hundred percent it's it's look it's the worst feeling it's 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 it sucks for us to be the messenger sometimes as well but look we emphasize with you know people that are doing it tough and you know sometimes it can just be you know not knowing of the taxes in advance before it actually happens and you've already spent the money to pay those taxes so that's where a lot of businesses actually end up in the trenches because they haven't had you know, careful planning or all the advice to plan ahead for these sort of things. So, you know, at this time of year, we're having a lot of tax planning meetings with our clients to make sure that they don't get any nasty surprises. And look, if there is a debt, if there is going to be a payable in the future for a business, for example, it means that business is actually doing pretty well. But yes, you got to pay taxes. Let's plan for it. Let's show you what that actually looks like and what we can do to manage that. As I always say, if, you, if you're paying taxes, it means you have an income. So, uh, that's a good thing. Moving on, self-education expenses. Healthcare workers generally train for longer periods of time, particularly um, uh, nurses, allied health professionals, doctors, etc. So, are self-education expenses always claimable and do they always need to lead to a higher education or higher qualification? Yep. So, look, this is where people can get a little bit tricked up on. So, you know, self-education expenses, they're deductible when you have when you can make a sufficient connection between the education that you undertake and to your current employment to maintain or improve the skills within your current employment, or if it actually results in or is likely to result in increased income from your current employment then you may be able to get a deduction there. Where people actually get tricked up on is, for example, okay, let's say, for example, I am studying to become an accountant and I don't have a a job as an accountant. I can't claim a deduction there. That's not the part where people get tricked up on. The part that where people can get tricked up on is, for example, a transition into a different role, but it's within the same industry. So, for example, I'm working, you know, with I'm working as a as a as a chef, you know, that's my primary role, hospitality chef, and I am undertaking courses to become a restaurant manager. Right? It's the 
connection between the two roles, you wouldn't say there's a sufficient connection. Yes, it's in the same industry. Yes, it might be under the same company, but it is a different role to actually being a chef. Now, if the chef was to go and get, you know, education on a particular cooking a particular cuisine, for example, to further improve their skills within their current roles, then there's a sufficient connection to get a deduction. Okay. Yep. Because a lot of doctors do training and as part of training, they need to pay college fees, surgeons especially. So, uh, you know, you become an intern, become a resident, become a registrar in surgery, and you got to pay your dues to the College of Surgeons, which is around five to $8,000 a year. And that's their college fees to train as a surgeon. The training is provided by the hospital. So, essentially, that's going to lead to a higher qualification once they finish surgical training. I suspect that would be okay because there's a connection between being a registrar and then finishing up and becoming a consultant surgeon. Is that yeah, a fair yeah. interpretation? Yep. No, no, you're spot on. And look, what you know, things that you can actually look at is does your current employment require you to take that training because that is the intention for you to eventually you've you've got that pathway listed out. Right. And they they require you to undertake that training, but they're not paying for that training. And that is a part of your role. If you don't do that training, then you're out of the role. <laughs> um, so, you know, that, you know, if you can prove that there is sufficient connection for your current employment, then you may be eligible for a deduction. And there's a number of factors that you can actually go through, but, you know, the onus is on you to provide that connection um, if someone comes knocking. Like what we actually said before, the ATO can actually call your employer, ask you whether, hey, did they need to take that particular training course or that particular, you know, education for their current role? And, you know, your employer can say no, and your deductions denied. Right. Okay, cool. And uh, I've got a bit of a scenario. And Andrew, you don't need to answer this question, but I thought this was interesting. Plastic surgeon who does a lot of plastic surgery, which involves photography before and after. This includes cosmetics as well. If they went and did a photography course to enhance their photography skills, is that claimable? And you don't need to answer that. I thought that's an interesting scenario. Um, one of the questions that I got, because I think that those sort of things you got to be a little bit careful about and, and definitely run it past the, <laughs> run it past the professionals. Yeah. And, and look, the professionals will ask a lot of questions behind that too, because at the end of the day, you know, if, if you do have a tax advisor that does your tax returns, we need to ask the questions so that we don't run into any pitfalls later on. You know, yes, we might be annoying in asking the questions, but at the end of the day, we're trying to actually protect your interests. You know, there's no point in claiming a deduction when someone can come knocking on your door later on and then you're in trouble. So yes, we, we do go through a little bit more of an in-depth, you know, questionnaire to further substantiate mm. a potential claim. Yeah, do you really need a $20,000 camera uh, to perform that function, which probably can be done with an iPhone? Anyway, last question and gone a little bit over time, but last question, this is an interesting one, slightly controversial. So private healthcare workers, uh, particularly doctors and also allied health professionals who, who are on private billings. So basically they may be contractors for practices. Do they have to be a sole trader or can they route the income through a company for tax efficiency and reduction purposes? And let me give you an example to sort of clarify that. Devraga is a GP who works in a private clinic. And the relationship is that I work as a contractor 
for practice ABC. Can Devraga, me, create a company called Devraga Proprietary Limited and ask the clinic to pay the portion of billings which belongs to me to this company and that way I only pay company tax rates because if I'm a sole trader with an ABN, I would need to pay top marginal tax rate. Is that possible? And I'm actually physically having to go to this practice and physically consult with patients. Yeah. So I actually love this question and we actually do hear about this type of question a lot, you know, structuring how do I, you know, perform my services. So quick answer to your question is you can do it either way. You can perform those services under your own ABN, under your own personal exertion, or you can contract it through an established entity that you own. And there's actually many factors that play behind the decision that you actually make. There's no cookie cutter approach to that particular decision. One of the most important decisions that I think, you know, will actually be possibly the deciding factor it will be the asset protection component as well as the separation of liability between yourself and the work you perform. So I actually can imagine within the medical profession, it's a very risky industry. Um, if something goes wrong and you perform the services under your own ABN, you might have insurances that are in place, but you know you your personal assets could potentially be at risk for the activities that you perform. Um, You know, some of the clients that I actually see require that before they contract out to a particular um, practitioner, that they need to have a company established and it's purely, it it all comes back down to the asset protection and the separation of liability um, point of view. So, yep, you can either do it under your own ABN or you can do it under a company. And I think the mo- one of the most important deciding factors would be, you know, I guess the risk appetite for wh- for how protected do you personally want to be. Okay. And can I just clarify, is that the same answer if I physically have to use my labour to actually perform the duties? Because as a doctor, I need to physically exert, you know, I'm trading my time for that income. Uh, because the general, I mean, I actually thought that wasn't really possible that if I work at a clinic as a contractor, I couldn't just set up a company um, uh, and route my billings through the company and pay the 25% flat tax rather than having to pay uh, the 45% marginal tax rates had I have an ABN structure because I'm actually, you know, that would be classified as personal services income. Yeah. Um, so that that's an interesting sort of thing. I actually thought that's not possible. Yeah. So that was where I was leading to next. And that's why I said one of the most deciding, important deciding factors will come back to asset protection, how protected do you want to be? Now there's also the tax side of things and what you've said is exactly right. If you are performing services under a company and it's 100% in relation to your personal exertion, you don't have any employees, it's it's purely 100%. It's like you were actually working for the company, you're just running it through a different, through a company vehicle the ATO do have rules behind this because the ATO essentially see that 
well, you've essentially put it through, you could potentially be putting it through a company to get a tax advantage when really you could go and contract it out under your own ABN or you could go and work for the guys if that's purely what you are doing. Look, there are a number of tests that you go through to determine whether PSI rules do come into play. And if they do come into play, and it does mean that you are, you know, affected by it, essentially the income for tax purposes is actually rerouted back to your personal tax return. So you you, you do get taxed on that income at your marginal rates and you wouldn't be able to apply the 25% flat tax rate from the company. Now, in saying that, in our experience, it's not difficult for doctors providing the services um, to patients to pass the results test or the unrelated clients test. It really just depends on the nature of work and the type of practice that you are contracting for. So, you know, those rules are there, but you know, in saying that, you know, if one of the most important things to you as a practitioner is asset protection and you want to separate your personal assets and mitigate the risk as much as possible, then, you know, you can own, you can establish a company. Yes, you can, you might get it impacted by the PSI rules, but you've got the asset protection there. Whereas if you were to go and, and do it under your own ABN and contract it out personally, the tax impact's the same, but the asset protection might not be there. Right. So that's an interesting point because we're so focused on tax, but it's probably also really important to focus on asset protection if you're in a job where your personal assets may be at risk from the type of job that you do. And and that can be a doctor or, you know, a tradesperson or whatever it is. Um, so that's a really, really important point. So yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, absolutely. And look, that comes down to any type of structuring conversation. So that's why I love the conversation because, you know, a lot of people jump straight to tax when that actually may not be the most important aspect. There are a lot of other factors to consider because, you know, a company is a separate legal entity to yourself. So, um, you know, that's where we try to focus people on because, you know, the tax side is the tax side. That's great. And there are benefits to that. But at the end of the day, it's protecting yourself. And that's that's the benefits of that particular vehicle. Perfect. I think that's all of the questions. So thank you very much for coming on the uh, show and also being the first guest, which is my honour. And, and, and thanks very much for that. Absolutely. My pleasure. No, thank you very much for having me, Dev. And really appreciate the opportunity to talk to your listeners today. Now, before we just finish up, um, Andrew, you've got thousands of people listening to this and what would be perhaps one or two take-home messages when it comes to taxation? Yep. So, look, I guess my first key message would be not to wait to the last minute. So, you know, if you do have concerns about your personal arrangement or your business arrangement and you you do have an accountant, it, it, it's always good to just 
give a phone call to your accountant and maybe set up a a meeting to just basically ensure that you you're not running into any pitfalls. Tax law is changing constantly, so you know even if it's just an information session to understand what's new out there and what could affect me, that could be very valuable to you. You know, so number one would be speak to your accountant, be proactive and not reactive. And number two would be, I guess it would be, you know, I'll tailor it towards your listeners specifically is the medical, you know, industry is, can be risky, you know, in particular to, you know, the type of work that you guys perform. So I guess it touches back on the last one is, you know, if you have concerns about your current structure and you're looking for a little bit of guidance, do speak to your accountants. If you don't have one, speak to us. You know, it's actually never too late to actually go through a potential change, whether you've been three years doing it under your own ABN or whether you're starting fresh. So speak to your accountants. If you don't have one, we're here to help. Thanks very much. Uh, Look, that's about it for this episode. So thanks for everyone for tuning in. And, you know, if you want to leave a review, a five-star review or a rating on Apple Podcasts, that'd be great, or any podcasting platform that may be using, or maybe leave it in all of the podcasting platforms, that's even better, uh, because I love reading the comments, I love reading the ratings. And once again, thank you very much for Andrew. Just a bit of a sneak peek in terms of what is coming up. In this series, uh, we're going to be talking about biases. We're going to be talking about superannuation. Uh, I'm just going to do a three-part series on superannuation. So lots of lots of interesting and useful topics coming up. So that's about it. My name's Dev Raga. This is My Millennium Money Medical. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.